Hey, Gestalt Education Nation, uh, new sponsor alert, new sponsor alert. Today, we're excited to announce uh, Dynamic Disc Designs and Jerome Fryer. Uh, we have an awesome discount code for you. Just use the code Gestalt uh, to get a little bit of money off on the, the Dynamic Disc Designs. They're the, the most realistic anatomical discs that we've ever seen. If you caught our, our episode with uh, Dr. Stuart McGill, you saw an entire shelf full of them. Everything from cavitation instruction to uh, uh, disc dysfunction to SI joint dysfunction, all sorts of amazing joint stuff. Joint movement, yes. vertebral movement. Absolutely. So uh, go to Dynamic Disc Designs, uh, use the code Gestalt. As always, you can use the code Gestalt on Core 360 belt to get a, a little discount on the belts there. We love to use that for biofeedback for teaching respiration, intra-abdominal pressure, and how the, the abdominal wall should be working in, during function. Uh, and then the last one, use the code Gestalt Education 10. Those will all be in the description in the podcast. Gestalt Education 10 at humanlocomotion.com uh, to get off uh, some money off of all of his awesome gadgets and tools and uh, rehab uh, materials. What's your favorite, Brett? He's got a trunk full, but I think, you know, integrating the Topro in, I think, has been a game changer for us here at the office. So I think that would be my pick. Beautiful. All right, guys, don't forget, use the code Gestalt, Gestalt Education 10. Uh, visit the show notes and you'll be uh, hooked up. Thanks. Enjoy the episode. All right, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Gasol Education Show. Today, we are in uh, Casa de Winchester here in Troy, Missouri. Brett, you had to show off your new living room. You just got it done. It looks beautiful in here. So thanks for hosting us. Uh, cheers. Got a little bit of wine. Tom was afraid he was going to spill it on your brand new couch, yeah, I, so he, he put I it over did, there. But, so. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, if you uh, if you recognize this man, if you're watching on the YouTube or his voice, uh, Dr. Thomas showed is uh, he's been on this podcast a lot. He is like our freaking racehorse at this point. I you know, imagine coming back. <laughs> <laughs> Someone say abuse. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, <laughs> it, it's something. But the day's uh, not over. We are uh, Tom's here in town for the uh, the annual Motion Palpation Institute Gate Course. Uh, tomorrow it starts. Mm -hmm. Brett, you, uh, Tom, and then also Mark King. And uh, it's a great weekend, one, because we get to see Tom, obviously. But then it's a great weekend for collaboration between the three of you. Uh, three different kind of approaches in assessing or, or and how gait really impacts the assessment and the treatment. Uh, and maybe three different kind of lenses even uh, that, that you'll look through it. Yeah, so uh, it, it's been an amazing uh, yeah, course. And I think gait is it's kind of, we call it the lost art of gait analysis. Because in school, you learn like Parkinsonian gaits and you learn like these gaits that you're never going to see. But um, there's a really good chance that all of us would benefit from getting our patients up off the table, watching them walk, move, lunge, and you can get a lot of information from, from all those things. So, yeah. So, I mean, we started it, I mean, I don't know how long we've been doing it. Maybe this is 15 years and, uh, it, it's always a great weekend because I feel like at the end of the weekend, it always makes me want to watch my patients walk more right. like, you know, mm -hmm. and, uh, yeah, there's so many things and really what it ends up being is more of like a lower extremity seminar. And I think that's what makes it really special. And, uh, you obviously have Tom who's the expert in the world in lower extremity, everything. Yeah. And then Function. you have yeah. Mark who does, uh, obviously the joint play, uh, manipulation piece. And then I'm more like the rehab part of it. So I feel like it's a really good mix of, uh, a bunch of different things. So, and, and it's actually evolved even with the three of us. I mean, we had, uh, Gary Gray with us last year and, uh, we got some special guests for next year. I think, uh, Courtney Conley's committed to being at our gate course. And, uh, yeah. So, I mean, it's, I think it's, as always, it'll be a great weekend. Love it. All right. Well, let's get on to our topic today. So, uh, Tom, you just finished. Uh, how, how many months did you say it took you? to I, At least four months. I've, uh, I reviewed about 600 articles and called it down to 100 articles where I wanted to look at 
what predicts a fall in some way. The probability of falling, one in four people over the age of 70 falls annually. Um, and if you fracture your hip, 25% of them are dead in, in less than six months. 50% never get back to their prior level of function. And a lot of it is preventable. They have done multiple studies that have shown that simple strengthening exercises can make a big difference. So there's strength, flexibility, agility, and balance. And so there's four subcomponents. So what I did was I took all of the literature, I looked what tests have been done that have been proven to correlate with falls <clears throat> and what interventions fix that. So I made a series of 14 different tests. They take about 30 seconds to a minute to do. You can do some of them, you can do all of them. And then based on how they do, you do interventions that target their weak points. If, they're, if they've got problems with flexibility, limited ankle dorsiflexion, for example, you, you take an iPhone, put it on your goniometer and have someone do a gastroc stretch. If they don't go um, 34 degrees, they're more likely to fall because as the leg is behind them, they shorten their stride and then they are become a little late propulsive. And a study out of Iran showed that four 60 second stretches decreased fall rates in older people. And the tests are simple. One of them is the anterior fall envelope. You just have a person stand up and lean forward. I use a laser scanner. I put all the links at the back of the article to the products that cost $60. You press it once at the start of the test, and then you say, lean forward, do it in front of a wall so they don't fall. Then you press it twice. If they don't go 4.5 inches, they're highly likely to fall. Mm -hmm. The best predictor of a fall, most falls happen at the initiation of gait. So, and it's because it, when you lean forward, when your body's straight, your toes control your anterior fall envelope. So you do that toe dynamometer. You got to get 10% under your great toe, 7% under lesser toes, super easy. But then um, quad strength, interestingly enough, with all the research that I went through, calf strength was far and calf and toe strength, far and away the best predictors of falls. But quad weakness was a predictor falls downstairs. Mm. And quad weakness is assessed with that sit to stand test. You have a patient sit in a chair, cross their arms. You say stand up uh, five times and they have to be able to do it in less than 12 seconds. And if they can't do that in 12 seconds, they're highly likely to fall because of quad weakness and lateral step ups, things like that are just really easy to address. They're safe exercises. They're easy exercises. And because you're just going through a, like a four to six inch step up, even people with knee arthritis and knee arthritis is predictive of falls. Yeah. And, I mean, I noticed you didn't say glutes. I mean, cause the one that you would really be thinking about is glutes. So what'd you find as far as, well, th that's a great question. And that's, I spent way, like I usually do, I spent way too much time going into something that really hasn't been correlated with falls just because I found the research so fascinating. Hip strength is important. <laughs> Once a fall is initiated, hip strength is important to stop you from falling. And some studies have shown that hip strength protects against lateral falls. But what I found when I was researching was a paper that came out in 2023, Avri et al. They showed that in the last 3 million years, our femoral neck angle has gone from 90 degrees in Lucy to 135 degrees to better handle the forces of bipedality. And that rechanneled force through the neck. And I tell people, think of a branch 
there you're building a tree fort on or something. You wouldn't build it on a branch that came out 90 degrees. You'd build it on a branch that was going up 130 degrees because it would have more compressive force on the bottom. And it turns out that walking and running in no way protects your femoral neck as you age. As you get older, force gets channeled through the lower portion of the femoral neck, which gets thicker and thicker. And the upper portion, by the time you're 60, in walkers and runners is paper thin. In people who do squats and do lunges, rowers, bike riders, they have thick femoral necks in the upper component. And if the upper component of the femoral neck thins too much and you fall sideways, if you land on your greater trochanter with a lateral fall, because the femoral neck angles up 135 degrees, it creates a bending force that compresses and fractures that tiny little fragment. It's the size of half of a dime. And then once that breaks, the whole femoral neck shatters. My mom broke or shattered her femoral neck with a fall when she was in her late 70s. She had Parkinson's. But she had really good bone density, so I didn't understand why she broke her hip. And when I saw that paper, I realized why. So a couple of people have studied that in particular, protecting against um, femoral neck fractures. And they showed that the obturator externus, internus, and piriformis attach on that weak spot. And when you do a, a lunge or a, like a deep squat, you pull on that portion of the neck and strengthen that portion of the bone. So they did one study with 20-year-olds where they just had them jump five, I believe it was five times, three times a week, as high as they could. And it increased bone density in that spot in a relatively short period of time. It was less than six months. And that was a fascinating paper because the authors correctly said it wasn't the landing that created the vibration that strengthened the femoral neck is when they told them to jump as high as they could, they went down into like the lowest position they could and then accelerated up like a rower would. That's why I don't think rowers ever break their hips with falls. Humans are the only mammals that fracture their hips with lateral falls. And in cultures like rural China and Gambia, where people squat a lot, they sit in a squat position, even though they're osteoporotic because they have limited vitamin D exposure and poor diets, they do not break their hips even when they're in their 80s. Mm. It's just us. Yeah. So I came up with a series of exercises, like a, a lateral step up, curtsy step ups um, that target those muscles with low loads on the knee. Because in one study where they took people over, over 65 and they wanted to protect them from falls, they had them do squats and stuff, but they got hurt. So they then switched out. They also showed you build peak bone density. And this is the part that's hard about the paper that I just wrote. If you have a bunch of 20-year-olds do these hop exercises, they will build a lot of bone fast because their osteoblasts are active, everything's functioning. You, They did one... I, I like the researchers because they did one six-month study where they trained people to put backpacks on and jump and lunge and do all this stuff. They got hardly any improvement at all in six months. Then they got more funding, and I think they intuitively knew they were right. They did a five-year study of the same protocol with like 95% compliance, and the people who did the hip strengthening stuff, the average age at the start was around 65 they increased their bone density about 2%. Young people would have had way more than that. But the control group lost 5% of their bone density in their femoral neck. So it, it stops it and delays it. But the take-home message was you should really be doing exercises in your 30s and 40s if you don't want to be breaking your hip in your 70s and 80s. 40% of people over the age of 70 fall annually. It's just so common. It's almost 2% of the GDP managing falls. And... 
one of the major factors is right now one in 11 people is over the age of 65 in this country and another few years it's going to be one in six and the number of falls is exceeding the growth of the um the older population so it's not just that they're getting old they're they're getting old but falling at higher rates because we're getting weaker so some of the other fact some of the other tests that i that other people came up with that i liked Agility is predictive of falls. And all of these things aren't just to prevent falls. It's to make you, as you're my age, like still be agile. Uh, and they, a simple test of agility is get a six-inch platform, set a timer, say go up and down, do eight steps on that, and you've got 10 seconds, and you time them. And that's a metronome at 192. So it's, it's a fast test. 20 25% of the population will fail that, and it predisposes them to fractures. So the intervention that I came up with for that was set a metronome on your iPhone, all these things you can do. Under, set a metronome, put a six-inch platform in front of a wall in case you lose balance, set it at 130, and time your te steps to 130. If you did that, the next time, set it at 140. Mm -hmm. Your goal is to do one, a, a metronome at 192. And people do it. And the, I, I like that test because it was nice, quick, and easy. The other test, and we talked about it last time, was decreased proprioception because the cutaneous receptors in your skin, just like you don't hear as well, uh, you have what? four. Yeah, <laughs> you have four cutaneous. You have four cutaneous <clears throat> receptors in the bottom of your feet, and as you age, it takes seventy percent more pressure to stimulate them. They just, it's, it's like being hard of hearing. And without those receptors, and they're all located under the lateral side of the foot to protect against lateral falls. Um, you are way more likely to fall. Most, when they study fallers versus non-fallers on center of pressure studies, the fallers move laterally too soon. And because they don't have awareness of it, they don't use their peroneals to bring them back. So the test for that, and I didn't know it until I started researching this, you take a 256 cycle per second tuning fork, you have the patient while they're up, lying face up on a table, put the butt of the tuning fork on the heel. Say, do you feel it? And you give them three chances. And one time, you, you'll deaden it so that it's not vibrating. If they're wrong two out of three times, they're highly likely to fall because they have impaired cutaneous sensation. And that's where I use those balance buttons to do that. But Brett and I were talking about it today. Balance protocols are really helpful with fall prevention. But some great research shows that endurance strengthening of the calf muscles stimulates circulation and uh, improves balance more than balance exercises mm. do. And the reason for that is when you do endurance exercises, you stimulate circulation of the muscle, which stimulates circulation of the muscle spindles, so you know where you are in space. And that's why the, the test after that is the heel raise metronome test. You set it at 60 and say, how many can you do? Someone in their 60s should be able to do 20. You know, I like to see people in their 60s doing 30 and it's it's easy to do. So, you know, strengthen your toes, increase endurance, pay attention to sensation. And then the other ones we talked about was limited ankle dorsiflexion, limited uh, dorsiflexion, less than 34 degrees on weight bearing predicted injuries. And easy to fix that study out of Iran for 60 second stretches. And then the other one Brett and I were talking about was limited inversion, eversion. You bisect their, their calcanei and you invert as far as it can, take a number readout with your phone goniometer and then evert. If they go less than 25 degrees, if their foot hits a cobblestone while they're walking, and this is true for 40, 50 year olds, if their foot hits a cobblestone, if the subtalar joint only goes like six degrees, it can't move any farther. So the knee goes in valgus and they go to the ground. 
So with that, I do that 2010 rock board. I just have them do the rock board, all easy protocols. So I just made up a series of tests, primarily things we just talked about. And then depending upon what they fail, you check the interventions on the next page. So the protocol can, the interventions, no one wants to exercise, especially people who are 70-year-olds and non-exercisers. But they've done some great research that shows that non-exercising 70 and 80-year-olds, if you give them the low-load, high-repetition stuff, they're compliant. And the improvements are so fast. And that's what I liked about this test. Because people will see the numbers that they get and the trainers who I've been working with, Leisha Whitlock is in, in Boston around me. She works with a lot of older athletes, older patients. Um, she says when you measure like hip rotation, toe strength, those 10 second balance tests, they know they did poorly and it motivates them. One of the tests is the 10 second balance test. I don't know if you're familiar with that. You just have people who are over the age of 60 stand on one foot, eyes open. You say you got 10 seconds to balance. 20% of the population who are 63 and over cannot do that test. That was a better predictor of death than hypertension, cholesterol, everything. And the author said this should be a part of every physical examination. It takes 10 seconds. 1,700 people followed for seven years, 80, like 83% correlation with mortality. And really easy to do. And for that, I do the, the protocols that I do on all these people are protocols that I've used on athletes for the last 40 years. So like when you I get a professional NFL player, I put them on that McHugh protocol. You just put them on an Airx balance pad and, and with eyes open, say McHugh protocol, you stand there for on one foot for a full five minutes. I made a softer foam pad that collapses more. So there's more action. So I have them do it in three minutes because five minutes is too long. And easy the improvements are unbelievable and then i'll use the toe pro for toe strength and for calf flexibility but you can do anything to do it and then the agility the lateral step ups i like and the hip the curtsy step ups really simple and then uh hold relax stretches there i put in all that research on prolonged stretches if you hold a stretch for 60 seconds it adds sarcomeres in series makes the tendon stronger one study of volleyball players found in 12 weeks they had 20 percent increases in jump height like crazy and it's all just tendon resilience <clears throat> and it's easy to increase tendon resiliency with the prolonged stretches because they're a pain in the neck like that protocol was stretching each muscle for 15 minutes i dropped it down to four minutes because no one's going to want to do it. And then if you pass most of the tests, you just got to target your weak spots. I mean, some people, if they have the hip strength, they've got the toe strength, they've got a good anterior fall, but they just have limited ankle dorsiflexion, all they got to do is four minutes of stretching a day. You know, and you can do a minute in the morning, minute in the afternoon, um, super easy. So it was fun going through that. It took a, it was a lot of work, but I'm retired now, so I got plenty of time. What about using T-scores as an audit? Would you be confident enough in the yeah, protocol? Yeah, to- I would use T-scores, but I don't personally think that osteoporosis, like you just want to stop people from falling. Mm-hmm. And when lack of T and Z-scores, like having good bone density doesn't protect you in the femoral neck. Good point, yeah. So like they'll look at Ward's triangle and Ward's triangle is fine in these people. They're not looking at that upper pole where the greater trochanter joins the superior femoral neck. So yeah, like I'll always look at the T-score just like low vitamin D correlated with falls. There were so many things I didn't put in. I put it in the beginning of the paper where I said falls are complicated. They're multifactorial. Uh, hypertensive drugs, 
strongly correlated with falls, especially when they're changed. Mm -hmm. um, antidepressants are correlated with falls. Every pain medication is correlated with falls. Low vitamin D is correlated with falls. And the one that I left off, and you could, uh, we were talking about it before, is a overpronated foot is strongly correlated with falls. People with uh, excessive pronation with flat feet are twice as likely to fall. And the reason for it, I was surprised by that data. And uh, Hilton Men's did that study, and then a, a big fall facility place in Boston did it. They took all the Framingham heart study data. They took like 1,700 people, and they wanted to see what correlated with falls, and they measured arch height with like like techniques that are valid. And high arch people, I thought they would fall because of impaired cutaneous contact with the ground. But they didn't. And I think it's because their first metatarsal is so plantar flex because they have a high arch that they bear weight under the first med head really well. So when they do the anterior fall movement, because they can bear weight under that spot, they don't fall. But a low arch person, their rear foot everts, the first metatarsal dorsiflexes, and peroneus longus now has a horizontal angle of approach, so it can't pull down. So if you look at the wear pattern of someone's foot who's a pronator, big callus under the second. And I think the lack of force beneath the first MTP and beneath the hallux is the strongest predictors of falls. And that's why the pronated people fell. So the pronated people, I put varus posts in, those peel and stick varus posts we talked about. And then this was interesting, people with bunions fell. And, and then I found out pronators are way more likely to get bunions, which is interesting because of that elevation. And people with hammer toes are likely to fall. And you can't, if someone has hammer toes, they can't strengthen on the toe pro because it's too aggressive mm -hmm. because it's curled down. So I just take a, a yellow TheraBand, put it under their heel, forefoot, raise up the second through fifth and just have them push down to fire it and then have them put a toe crest on. And then they've done research out of Thailand shows. You take those pediplast toe separators, you put them between the hallux and the second toe, it can straighten out a bunion. So strengthen their abductor hallucis have them sleep with a pediplast on. And in the video that I'm making of this, I show people how to make pediplast toe separators. So it's just easy protocols, take seconds to do. You just got to know which tests to do. And it was a lot of work, but I, I'm glad I did it. <clears throat> but you really got to start young. You really got to start for the bone density stuff in your 30s and 40s. The fall stuff, the one study showed that the people who scored the poorest on balance and other factors like agility had the best outcomes. They improved the most because their starting point was so low. So I'll always say that to people if they're starting up. But I want people to go out and get tested in a, a doctor's office, a chiropractor's office, a PT's office, so that they get that checklist and they know where they are. And then if they're really bad, I'll work with a trainer. You know, because you can fall doing these, you know, for 40 years, I treated athletes. So this is kind of a, a new realm for me. And it's fun. It's been good. And then are those assessment pieces on your website as well? Yeah, they're like, going the, the, up soon. I just finished okay, the article cool. now and I made a really terrible video where I talked endlessly and it's unwatchable. So we'll be posting that pretty soon. <laughs> I put my poor wife. I had her do all, all the tests. It was terrible. It was, 
<laughs> I can't wait. Yeah, it was good. It's gonna it be amazing. Funny. So it was, and and she did unbelievably well on all the tests. Like she scored twenty percent of her body weight on her great toe. I was like, you've been doing the toe pro, but then she scored like ten percent of her body weight on the hip rotation strain test. It was like. You haven't done those exercises in about two years now. And she recently started doing them and she was complaining about her hip. And I thought she'd been doing them all along. So that's what's so nice about these strain tests. Like all of these tests, you know, and you see objective improvements and their inter-rater reliability is crazy high. So I wanted to come up with stuff that was valid, that you could trust, that was simple, that people could then motivate people because falls it's an epidemic and it's getting worse and it's gonna it's gonna just destroy the healthcare system soon and that i didn't even get into it the dns modified the long line falls i had no idea i saw it. my dad had a degenerative condition inclusion body polymyositis and uh, he would often if he fell to the ground even if he wasn't hurt he'd have to call some like an ambulance to help him pick him up the vast majority of ambulance calls for falls are not for fractures. It's because people are too weak to get up. And if they can't get up, they become what are called long liars. If you're on the ground for more than an hour because you can't get up, there is a 50% chance you'll be dead in the next few months. And I, I went to the DNS thing with Lindsay Muma, and you gave that great course in North Carolina because I love that DNS movement where you teach kids to roll over from a crawl at six months. And I thought there's different ways to get up. And people have studied it, which I'd never seen any of that research because I keep up with sports medicine stuff. They looked at the way people who fell got up. And most people would go on their bellies and try to push themselves up on all fours and then crawl to something they could push up. But a lot of people did the sideward shift where they went on an elbow and a hand and then got up. And that required less knee mobility, less hip mobility. So people with arthritis could do it. So I took that movement and I thought of what you're, you're teaching in the classes. So I came up with a modified move where you put the top hand when you're in a sideline position. That's why I had you film it. Mm-hmm. I was Some of the drawings, it was of you on when we were down in North Carolina. <laughs> I had to make the person look good. Yeah, I was going to say, that's, that's scary. <laughs> so they raise up and then you just flex and extend the hip like this. Mm-hmm. And then at the, you do that 10 times, then you just put the knee towards the top hand and it rolls them into a, a crawl position and they don't even know they're doing it. It's really cool. So first, if they can't do it, you just have them hold it a few seconds to go down over a period of weeks, they get so they can easily do it. And the researcher said, training improves this. This is a learned mechanism and it's easy to fix it. And when someone's on the ground and they can't get up and you could have prevented it with like three months worth of easy exercises, they take three minutes a day. Yeah, the long liars, that was the last thing I put in the article. And to me, it was the most intense because I couldn't imagine what it'd be like to be on the ground and not be able to get up. And like this simple movement, it, I, I really liked the feel of it. Like it just, and when you see older, a friend just sent me a video of a 90 year old woman who refused to get on the ground because she felt she couldn't get up. Uh, and she is starting to do this and she's like almost to a point where she can roll and get up, which is neat. That's right. That's what's so powerful with DNS too, is like, it's a, you know, it's an ingrained motor pattern. And so you could make an argument that, you know, doing it later on in life is, is simpler for the brain to understand because we've already done it. It That's- definitely is. And I realized that because I was telling Brett, I've written all these books on human movement. 
but I kind of avoided the zero to two year old because, mm. like, I never had kids and I never see kids. So right. <laughs> when I was studying some of the DNS stuff, you were helpful. Lindsay was helpful. Um, it, it all made sense to me that, of course, an older person would want to revert to a, a wiring pattern from infancy, mm-hmm. and when you teach it to them, they they get it fast. And it's kind of nice, as opposed to struggling into a, a crawl and then pushing up. It, it was just, it was cool. It was, it was fun coming up with the protocol, like a crazy amount of work. Like, and then all the illustrations and then like pestering my wife to do all the tests. On it. <laughs> yeah, but it, it's good. I hope it works out. I want to get more people doing it. I want to get people, we're putting the course, it's an hour and a half um, online thing. And I just want people to learn how to do it. And then links where you get all the stuff. 256 cycle per second tuning fork is six bucks. The laser scanner is 50 bucks. You know, all the other stuff is free. It's on your phone. So, um, and you can quantify and improve. And the people who have had to do it so far really like it because they're low stress exercises. Unlike a lot of the researchers, because researchers know jack about strengthening. So, you know, they're not squats for old people. There, if you're in your 70s or 80s, and I like my knees, I've got a little arthritis in it. I do not like doing deep squats. So all the action. In fact, when we made some of the videos, I realized when I was taking the measurements on the ground, I couldn't get off the ground without putting my hand on my wife's knee. And I was pushing up. I was like, oh, sorry. So it was. Uh, they're low stress exercises with high returns. Love it. Yeah. How yeah. often are they, do they go through the program? Daily? Four times a week for the strengthening. Uh, that's if they fail certain tests. So it's four times a week for the strengthening. But I made the balance stuff daily because that McHugh protocol is only, it's three minutes on each foot. And I didn't put it in the study, but a paper just came out because I didn't want to make it too complicated. You know how you strengthen your right side, 10 to 15% of your um, cortex doesn't cross over. So if you strengthen your right arm only, your left arm gets 10 to 15% stronger because those nerves learn how to fire the muscle. Someone just published a, a paper and I'd seen it previously. I talked about it in human locomotion. If you do balance only on one side, there's a 100% transfer to the other side. That was from a paper in 2010 and someone just redid it and got the same results. So they said, in fact, they said that balance is stored in a portion of your cortex, in your, your right cortex, which I, I like, I want to look that up because to me is more cerebellar and vestibular. It's more complicated than that. But the end result was if you only do your balance exercises on one side, you'll, you'll improve on the other. So I was going to, but you see, when you're going back and forth like that, you're not just improving proprioception, you're improving strength. And the research showing that when you get blood flowing, and I talked about it in it briefly, again, I didn't want to make it complicated. People with diabetic neuropathies and with peripheral neuropathies, when you do endurance exercises, it stimulates nerve growth factor, it stimulates circulation of the nerves, and they improve. And there's only been a a few pilot studies, one in Australia, Karen Mickle did it, where she had people with peripheral neuropathies do strengthening, and the outcomes are unbelievable. And you know, you guys are in practice when you get the peripheral neuropathy patients and then spinal stenosis patients, they're hard to get better. But now I just do endurance stuff and it works really well. And if you're doing a toe pro or any foot ankle exercise, if they can't hit sets of 25, um, I have them lean against something and then raise up because some people go, I can only do three. It's like, that's, you're not going to get stronger with that. And 
like one set to fatigue can increase strength a little, but four sets increases circulation, increases capillary bed formation, all the stuff you need to improve balance. Is there any correlation in the research you've done on spinal stenosis predisposing you to fall risk? Because yeah. when you said the 256, because you do that test for spinal stenosis. Yeah, the lower extremity review had me do a write-up years ago after a paper came out showing that people with spinal stenosis, if they cannot feel 256 cycle per second tuning fork, they're four times more likely to get their ankles replaced. They get massive arthritis because the impaired sensation it's, you know, like a Charcot's joint. It's like a, a leprosy Blind. where they can't yeah. feel it. So because they, they can't tell where they are, the joint's moving too fast and it becomes unstable and breaks down. What I have noticed in my last, because that paper came out like eight years ago, and they have shown that mobilization and manipulation in, increases your ability to feel uh, 256 cycle per second tuning fork. And one study on ankle sprain showed that massage increased closed eye balance and mobilization increased anterior reach tests so you became more agile and uh, with better dynamic balance with joint manipulation and you with massage it stimulated cutaneous receptors so i tell people get those foam rollers get the like I, under my desk i have those wooden wheels i just roll my feet over just to kind of wake them up a little bit but then endurance exercises do you stimulate circulation? But anyone with stenosis, I take that 256 and I put them on it. And if they don't feel it, I go, get very aggressive with calf strengthening and toe strengthening. And they love it because they feel it. They start walking better. Their stride length increases. That's why I'm doing a study of this. I just bought that uh, gyroscope that microgate cells. It tells center of pressure within like a thousandth of a degree. So I'm putting on people at the start and the end of a 12-week study. And then I'm doing the optigate to measure their stride length. Um, and then force output with, uh, with vertical jumps. You can measure in milliseconds from when the heel leaves the ground and the forefoot leaves the ground, how long they're in the air. And it's extremely reliable, really accurate. So I'm trying to get 30 people to do a six-month study to see um, the effect. And I know it's going to be unbelievable. What if they then, okay, they've done the program for three months and now they're they're <coughs> passing all the tests. Is there some kind of maintenance program that you think needs to be done? Or Yeah, that's what I talked about at the end of the article, that I have experimented with different maintenance protocols to see which worked. And once or twice a week is enough to maintain. And the tests, I have people come back at three, at sometimes two months to see how they're doing. Because if their hip rotator strength isn't getting better with the specific exercises you're giving, give them different ones. Like I just made up the ones that I like, but you know, all the guys that are listening out there are rehab guys. So try different ones and see what works for them. Uh, so that's why I, I said come back because some people, will, the increases in toe strength are just like unbelievable. That this would be unbelievable for like assisted living facilities, like where they're all, you already have a captive audience. So, I mean, you could be, you can do these exercises in a group too. Yeah. And that's uh, yeah. And that's what I kind of wanted to get going, but you know, I'm not connected to that world. I'm still mostly connected to athletes. So, you know, we'll see how it goes. And then do you think, uh, you, you kind of open it saying it, it should be part of a physical, is that a yearly checkup on these people that are, yeah, I mean, is that if kind of they, how you if envision they, it? Or? If they fail any of the balance tests, like one of the easiest tests to assess, it predicts lateral falls. It's called the near tandem test. You have someone and do, they do it in their 20s where they just make it harder. So if someone's in their 50s or 60s, you have them put one foot in front of the other, one inch apart, the heel one inch in front of the toes. 
And then they, they balance like that and you say, now close your eyes. If they can't balance 10 seconds and they get two tries at it, they're going to fall laterally. So strengthen the hip abductors and re- reassess it. No one has done. I bought every book. You know how I said I can't listen to podcasts. I read a lot. I bought every book on Amazon on fall prevention. Most of them were written by non-experts, like a retired gym teacher who just started losing his balance. So he writes something that works for him. The experts, there's there's nothing being done that's structured. So I thought, I don't want to make this my opinion. You know, Hilton Menz is down in Australia. He is a head researcher at Latrobe. He was the editor of Foot Ankle International. I asked him a bunch of questions, what his favorite test was, and he, he had a bunch of different tests that I've included. And so I asked a lot of really knowledgeable people, and it's been fun. It's been, and now I just have to implement it and see if it works. Right. You know, I think it will. For sure. Can we uh, switch directions uh, just a little bit? Let's kind of talk about, we, we mentioned a little bit with overpronators of using the stick and peel uh, valgus posting. Can we just give like a quick uh, thank you to our wine boy, Peter, for refilling us? <laughs> <laughs> no pool boy, just wine boy. You're such uh, a wonderful human being. Exactly. <laughs> Uh, can we, can you just give a quick overview? We've talked about it in past podcasts and things like that, but I think that they're underutilized of what they should be done. But, and, and maybe Brett, you could give your input too. Uh, what, what are maybe the top two or three presentations, Tom, that you would love to see those stick in, uh, peel and stick posts well, be used for? Great. A, a paper just came out that showed that people who get patellar tendinopathy, you could predict it. The tibia internally rotates farther during, um, contact and mid stance. And the couple of papers out of Thailand showed that two-piece peel and stick varus posts, just angled wedges go under the insole, take two seconds, decelerate the velocity of the tibia internally rotates. Do it in a neutral to a low arch foot, their knee will feel better. And then uh, a paper out of Thailand also showed a decreased plantar fascial stress. They're really easy to do. I recently switched manufacturers, so I was able to get it for a a more reasonable price. So I'm going to drop the price on those things so that chiropractors and sports medicine PTs can have them in their office, like a hundred of them. So you just want to be able to throw it on. It takes two seconds. And that was based on the research showing that um, orthotics cause 17% atrophy. If you support the arch too much, there's a, a trend away from supporting the arch because arch deflection is needed to strengthen the intrinsics. But at the same time, a wedged medial surface decelerates the velocity and the range, which can be harmful. Well, I think too, I mean, and, and you showed me this years ago, you know, I think we were all taught from, you know, Inman where, you know, we, we looked at the subtalar joint kind of like a mitered hinge and we kind of just believed that, you know, subtalar motion, in the coronal plane was a direct correlation into internal tibial rotation. And what you used to talk about was, you know, you think that that, you know, overly pronated foot would be sending a lot of transverse plane rotation to the tibia. But what you said was that, it, it's basically eight degrees of internal tibial rotation in a stiff cavus foot or a hypermobile foot. So the foot, the basically it's like a self regulating yeah. mechanism. Yeah. See, yeah, like that, because we always debated that, yeah. you know, and you just assume that the, the high arch cavus foot, that, that there was no internal tibial rotation. That was McClay's work. Yeah, that was good stuff. So, I mean, that's st- nothing new on that. That's still... No, kind of- one of the slides in tomorrow's lecture is the mitered hinge analogy is wrong. I mean, they've shown that the ankle axis 
is has like a vertical component to it. It's it's constantly moving. It's it's so far from being a hinge. It's ridiculous. So uh, nothing new on that, except when you sprain your ankle. Once you overstretch the anterior talofibular, then the talus spins medially and causes medial symptoms that people think is tip posterior, but it's just the medial talar dome hitting uh, the articular surface of the medial malleolus, and um, that I also treat with varus post even in neutral. Uh, footed individuals. Uh, Tom ran me around the tennis court today, but on, on the way coming uh, from that, you said something really amazing today. I, I point blank asked you, I said, are you ever really now anymore posting the forefoot? And never say never, but you said yeah, hardly ever. Yeah, I don't. Which, I mean, I think that makes life a lot easier for all of us. Yeah, yeah. It simplifies everything. And a, a friend who's a great podiatrist in Australia, we talked about it years ago. He said, if I see a foot has a tendency to go this way, I'll put a medial wedge on it. If it goes that way, I put a lateral wedge on it. But we had also talked about outcomes with varus posts are unbelievable. Varus posts are for pronation. They lift up the medial side. The outcomes with valgus posts for medial knee arthritis are less predictable. So a lot of people will use a, a post under the lateral side of the foot because then when the foot hits, the tibia abducts, which gaps the medial joint. So a couple of studies out of Japan showed that valgus posting, five-degree valgus posting, lessened medial knee pain in people with arthritis as much as high tibial osteotomies, which they cut a pie-shaped piece out of the bone and repin it. But subsequent research, I haven't seen, I see good results, but not this is going to be a home run. When I put it in, I'll say, try it. It might work. Uh, and that's why I want to make these things so that they're more affordable. <clears throat> Well, and then you said, you know, well, you didn't say it exactly this way, but I'm putting words in your mouth. If you're looking at a pie chart, 95% of the posting you're going to be doing is going to be a rear, rear foot varus post. Yeah. yeah. If you have that high arch cavus foot, then that might be the time when you're using a rear foot valgus post. And I also think it just acts as a proprioceptive tool. I wrote an article on that for, for a dynamic chiropractic years ago. You, you put a 25 degree wedge in someone's foot niggs research. Uh, the preferred movement pattern, you put a 25 degree wedge in someone's foot, they will pronate the same range. And what's the, what's the latest thought on if we do a varus post, are we slowing down the angular velocity of pronation? Or are oh. we actually stopping pronate or does that not even matter? It does. And I've been surprised by the recent research. I would have guessed it just decelerated the velocity. But it, it lessened the end range, it decreased the velocity, it decreased tibial rotation. So it did all the stuff that an orthotic does. It doesn't change it a ton, like just small amounts. But I think that it works by increasing proprioception because they feel a little more pressure and cueing pronius longest to stabilize the medial forefoot possibly, um, maybe by stimulating cutaneous receptors under the heel. And uh, Tom, the, another thing you said today that I thought will help a lot of people out was that, you know, I was of the belief that, you know, if you look at a rear foot and you see like valgosity and the, the calcaneus that you would use rear foot posting there. But then if you see falling in the medial longitudinal large, then we would continue or we would think about maybe using like an arch support. But what you said today that I thought was really interesting, you said that even if someone has a dropped medial longitudinal arch, you're still using a rear foot varus post and you might not be doing anything to support the medial longitudinal arch. That's the research that I'm going to go over tomorrow. There's been some debate lately where people say pronation doesn't matter, arch height doesn't matter, and they reference a few poorly done studies, one by NIG, 
where he showed no connection between arch height and foot motion. And what he did was he measured height of the arch with a caliper. So he went under abductor halysis. So if someone had a thick abductor halysis, but a neutral arch, they were classified as a low arch. It was a terrible study. It got referenced in the New York Times, and it caused a bunch of researchers to say, quit looking at arch height. But then other researchers re-quantified. They, they measured arch height on the top of the foot. They correlated to x-ray findings of declining of the first metatarsal. The shape of the arch predicts the location of injuries, the frequencies of injuries. But where the, the research got confusing was that some pronators get injured and some don't. And what they showed was that weak pronators, people who pronate a lot who have weak feet are going to get injured a lot. A stride, and I used to say that I used to treat a lot of Kenyan runners, low arch, but you look at their arch and they have an abductor halysis that's the size of a cigar. And a strong pronated foot is no more likely to get injured than anybody else. So choose your poison. Like if someone has, you look at their foot, if they have atrophy of the intrinsics, an over-the-counter or a custom orthotic, varus posting, and strengthening. But you, um, you really need to look at strength. And that's what people aren't looking at. If you take a pronated foot with a tight medial gastroc, limited ankle dorsiflexion, and weak intrinsics, their foot would be destroyed over time. They would never participate in sports and they would be constantly injured. And that's what a bunch of orthopedic researchers they showed. They showed the kids with hypermobile flat foot can't jump as high, can't run as fast, get injured way more often. But um, if they're strong, they don't. Well, I think too, I mean, we, I asked you too, I said, is there anything more than the toe pro that needs to be done? I mean, of course you can make it as complicated as you want, but it sounds like in your opinion, we can just put these people on a, a toe pro program and toe pro is the easiest, to- but it doesn't target tip posterior enough. So a lot of times I'll do, that's what we talked about. Transverse plane mm-hmm. strengthening for tip posterior, but that's where I'll show you guys tomorrow. I just made a new strengthening device, which is two rubber plates separated by a spring loaded resistance mechanism that goes up to 50 pounds. So you put your foot on it in the transverse plane and then just spin. So you do a forward lunge, and as you get stronger, you go to the end range, so you click it at the end, and then hold it isometrically. Great for the hip rotators, internal rotators, external rotators. I made it because I've had horizontal tears in both my menisci, and the only thing that corrected when I was when I strengthened popliteus. So I got tired of using TheraBands because I don't like TheraBands because force peaks when the muscle shortened. So I just made a prototype out of wood and, and springs bolted it all together. Whittled it out of wood. (laughs) Yeah, whittled it out of wood. And then uh, just went back and forth. And I I kind of forgot about it because it's really expensive to produce stuff and you usually lose money when you make stuff. But I just always noticed, I always went back to that. I've had it for the last year and a half, two years. And if my knee ever bothers me, it's because I'm not doing it. So I just had a manufacturer make up the plates, spring. Now I just have to figure out how to put them together. We should have it on the site in four to six weeks. Tom, on the rear foot varus post then, you said typically you're using a four degree. Yeah, therefore, I just go to four degree. So is there any other time when you'd use more? It's just- if someone had a tip posterior tear, like a stage three tip posterior tear where the tendon was splitting, I would do a medial flange and sometimes six degrees. And is there anything we should worry about? Like if we're unsure whether or not we should be using uh, a rear foot varus post, is there anything like, is there any consequences to using it that? Good question. The one consequence is just like you use a valgus post to cause the tibia to abduct, which opens up the medial joint. If you use a varus post, you're doing just the opposite. 
you are causing the tibia to adduct a little, so you're closing the medial joint. So if they had medial OA and a big tibial varum, I would be hesitant to do it. Um, but I have without too much trust. sounds so small. That's why I think it's proprioceptive. Right. I think it's proprioceptive. But the research out of Thailand shows that it lessens the end range, decreases the rotation, and lessens strain on the plantar fascia. So then with so many miracles with the rear foot varus post, what's left for an orthotic then? Like when well, a full-length you- post, like a, a rear foot varus and a forefoot varus combined, that's that Joseph study where they, they were good researchers. They didn't want to get into how do you categorize a foot type because no one agrees, foot posture index, blah, blah, blah. So they just took all D1 athletes and put varus posts on them and had them do jump tests. And independent of their foot type, they had less valgus collapse of their knees. Full length. Yeah, full length. Yeah. And that's what I originally started making. But they are a bear to cut. <laughs> and We've been through that. Yeah, the inside is hard to get around. And then I just started making the two pieces because I treat a lot of high-level runners and every ounce makes a difference. So I would just do the minimum. I don't want to support the arch. Mm-hmm. So I would do the minimum weight. I used a durometer rubber that mold to your foot over time because I've just dealt with materials for 40 years. And it goes on quick and easy. And I extended it under the hallux because... If you can generate more force under the hallux, you offload the Achilles tendon. People, after they rupture their Achilles tendon, MRI show they get um, compensatory hypertrophy of flexor hallucis longest after that. So I love that varus post because it's called a Morton's extension. I went beneath the big toe for a reason. I want people to generate more force off that. Your great toe correlates with athleticism when you change direction. The last thing on the ground when you're running and changing direction is your big toe. The world's best athletes have the strongest toes. Like, I don't know if you use that toe strength dynamometer. You get a surfer in, you get like an Irish dancer in, and you check that. You can't even pull the card out. They're so strong. And then you get other people, HAV, hammer toes. They don't even register mark. And they're going to fall. You want to see if someone's going to fall or be a bad athlete, take their insole out of their shoe and look to see where the wear pressure is. If it's under their central forefoot, they're going to be bad at stuff and get injured. If it's under their hallux, they're more than likely a great athlete. If they're older, they're not going to fall. And that takes the place of a $100,000 force plate. I don't own a force platform, even though I could, because I do a lot of this stuff in the office. I just take insoles out. I say, bring in a shoe you've worn for six months. And then on the good athletes and on older people who don't fall, you see clear wear patterns. It's easy. Um, and it's nice. And, and people get it. When you, you do that anterior fall test, say, now lean forward. And what do you feel? It's like, oh, my toes are pushing in the ground. So they get the connection. The number one predictor of falls in a big study out of Australia was toe weakness. Every 1% increase in great toe strength decreases fall risk 7%. And that, then if you went into 20 and 30-year-olds, it would be correlated with agility. Those studies out of Japan, they had obstacle courses and then had, took the, like the fastest from the regular ones and then measured toe strength on a dynamometer. The ones who were the fastest had the strongest toes. And you see it. I was planning on drawing some pictures of it. When someone's pushing off in that end stage, it's just their toes pushing into the ground. Um, and when you do, I would like to see MRI studies where they measure volume of flexor digitorum longus, flexor hallucis longus in good athletes versus, um, mediocre athletes. And I know the best athletes will have more volume in their flexor hallucis and less likely to be injured. 
What are the other times you would use a rear foot varus post? Obviously, over pronation is yeah, any- tarsal tunnel syndrome. Yeah, uh, tip posterior always. Uh, you know, uh, any anybody who had a high medial drift, that medial drift device I made, I just I love that because it tells you the lever arm, and orthotics don't alter motion as much as varus post don't alter motion as much as people thought, but they alter moment arms. So that measures a moment arm. How much force is displaced medially and varus posts alter that. So if they're over 10 millimeters on that medial drift, I'll put a post in. And almost always they go, that that feels right. That feels good. Unlike with an orthotic, where if the calcaneal incline angle is high, they've got to get used to it. You wear one hour the first day, two hours the second day. They can get blisters because when you take an impression of a foot, the foot is relaxed. But if they have a thick abductor halysis, which is a great thing, when they are pushing off, the abductor halysis pushes into the shell and they get these horrible blisters from it. And a lot of times good athletes go, oh, I just, this is helping me, so I'm going to deal with it. So, uh, yeah, I just, you, you cannot predict how much the arch will deflect in a, a thick abductor halysis is a contraindication. Like, if you had a new patient today and you saw overpronation or you, whatever you saw, would you still run them out with treatment and then go to that next step? Or do you like, are you so confident that they need a rear foot varus post that you're not even going to do a trial of care with treatment? You're still going to treat them, I understand. But like, would you just day one put the rear foot varus post in? Uh, probably not if they were strong. And remember, even a hypermobile flat foot, if they're strong, I'm not going to be worried about them. I would look at the best predictor of future injury is prior injury. So I'd look at their prior injury pattern. If they had an overstretched tip posterior, which is easy to pick up because they have more medial drift on that side, which isn't picked up with any other test. If you measure calcaneal eversion, you will not pick that up. Um, if you do uh, any arch height ratio device, you won't pick it up. But the the medial drift device picks that up in a, in a second. I would absolutely use it if they had a prior injury on the medial side. And that's what McClay showed. She made that arch height ratio device where she measured the height of the foot at the 50% mark divided by the length of the first med head. It exactly predicted x-ray measurements of foot architecture. Then she looked at injury patterns. People who went too far in, flat-footed people, got plantar fasciitis, medial knee injuries. Um, people with high arches got lateral ankle sprains, lateral injuries. So if someone came in and they were an overpronator who were strong and they had an IT, an IT band problem, I wouldn't do anything. Uh, I'd be, a, or if they had medial knee OA, I, I would be hesitant to use a varus post. You, you only want to do an intervention if it's, if it's justified. And to me, a tendency for a specific injury, weakness, and especially if they have limited ankle dorsiflexion. That D. Giovanni show, if you measure the flexibility of the ankle when the knee is straight, if they're limited there, the heel leaves the ground. They are five times more likely to fracture metatarsal. They are. They're going to get hurt. Four foot, like metatarsal. Uh, all, exactly. Yeah, all four foot aroma. stuff. HAV, Morton's neuroma. We always say, when in doubt, give them dorsiflexion exercises. Exactly. That exactly, and that's where the prolonged stretches. Because I used to be frustrated with them because I did shorter protocols. Then I saw the prolonged stretch routine, and like the pros that I see, I gave them the full to duplicate that study. So it, it took like 12 to 14 minutes of stretching. I try to get them to do both legs at the same time. And you stretch to the point of discomfort. 
So it's a, it's a tough protocol, but they added fascicles and length to the end of the muscle, and tendon resiliency increased markedly. And that's what I'm going to be talking about tomorrow. To me, the future of rehab is in figuring out how to improve tendon resiliency. Well, and wasn't it like 20% of muscle girth or something too? Like it yeah, was... yeah, because of blood flow restriction caused growth hormone to skyrocket. So a stretch so actually the had them lay down more muscle. But they weird... just published a paper where they looked at people running from fast speeds to full speed. And they showed that the Achilles tendon ramped up the storage and return of energy 50% while gastroc and soleus were just locked down isometrically. So you want to figure out ways to increase tendon resiliency. And those prolonged static stretch studies did, as did 30 to 60 second isometric contractions with the tendon in a neutral position. And that's that Keith Barr stuff. When the tendons separate, the healthy tendons separate when you hold it for a long time, exposing the tendinopathic tendons. Do you really think those like different positions actually matter? Or if like, because it's so hard to get compliance anyways. Yeah. Could you I, not just like put them on a slam board for 12 minutes? Or do you think it actually matters that you go to? I do think it matters only because. Do you use them all? Yeah. Because of knee bent, knee straight. <laughs> mm -hmm. like, that yeah, that tendon researcher showed that the bent knee soleus stretch produce the greatest increase in interfascicular sliding. And if you can make tendons slide on each other, people who are tendinopathic, you have 100,000, 200,000 tendon subfibers in there, and they all have to glide different amounts. People who get injured are gliding in the same area all the time. So he did a study where they used ultrasonography and other measuring techniques to see which, how do you make the tendons fire? A bent knee heel drop caused almost all the tendons to fire because soleus is the biggest muscle. It's got the greatest contribu contribution to force. And he said this represents a major advance in the treatment of tendon um, rehab. Uh, and so I always throw like isometrics with bent knees um, to get those tendon substructures to fire because that's when tenocytes repair. They sense the friction between the individual tendon fibers and that stimulates remodeling. Where else, I know, you know, we're talking about the foot and ankle now with the gastroc, but where else in the body do you think that research could be used? From Hip flexor, rotator sounds. cuff, rotator cuff. That exercise I showed you today for infraspinatus. Everybody exercises supraspinatus and like empty can, full can. I do a thing where I have them; they're side lying, and I have them lower the straight arm behind them. It takes supraspinatus, puts it in a lengthened position, alters deltoids lever arm, and then I just have them do fatigues, like the three times 25 protocol, and then hold it behind them so that their hand is by their sacrum while they're sideline with the involved shoulder up, and I have them hold it for 30 to 60 seconds, stimulating tendon remodeling. And then I do the same thing with infraspinatus with that one where you drop down. I wrote that article on that. It's, in the, it's on the website. Do, it does a torn rotator cuff really need surgery? Uh, and more often than not, it doesn't, except in high-level athletes who are young. I don't know. What about, like, lateral pendulitis? What if you – we talked any about, like, the – Any tendon. Yeah, so, I mean, maybe if you could convince them to do, you know, up against a wall, 12 – yeah. Yeah, yeah. You could do it to any tendon, and that's what I, I really like about it. They've done it with quads. They've done it with patellar tendons. Uh, and look up Keith Barr's stuff. He's got some stuff – a lecture that he gave in Europe – um, and I mean, he, he grows fiber, he takes fibroblasts and turns them into ACLs and then he raises them in different environments and then loads them to failure. Like he does some really great research and the articles that I just did on the Achilles tendon, those were some amazing researchers who are just thinking differently 
and you're going to see way better outcomes with it. Like that protocol that's been around, the Alfredson protocol has been around 25 years. Long-term success rate with that is terrible because it doesn't throw isometrics in there. Not, and it's not enough. Not enough. Though. Great job, guys. Yeah, you guys are the best. Tom, thanks for always educating us, man. Thanks for always right, listening right to our podcast. <laughs> yeah, Tom doesn't actually listen to our podcast, even yeah, though he yeah. had one. Yeah. He thinks we're just recording this for our own good right now. Yeah. I'm like, what is with these guys with these big microphones? <laughs> oh, my gosh. You know what? You know what they say. Yeah, it's tough to be an expert in your own backyard right? or something like that. No, <laughs> I love it, Tom. We appreciate you, brother. Uh, as always, uh, guys, uh, we can't wait to uh, to see you at a future MPI Gate seminar with these Yahoos, and uh, we'll talk to you guys soon. All right, good luck with patience. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Gasol Education Show. Uh, if you liked it, share it, subscribe to it, uh, send it to your friends, send it to someone that needs to hear this message. Uh, we really want everyone to be able to, to tune in and, and get the, the best clinical advice that they can, which uh, we're hoping that we're giving to you with these special guests. So um, if you have any questions, please feel free to reach out to us, or if you have any suggestions on upcoming uh, conversations, let us know. Uh, for a list of our upcoming courses, we're adding them all the dang time. So go to gestaltedu.com, click on courses, and they'll all be right there for you. All right, have a good day.